Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. Previously, I'm Climbing Gold. There was this ideal that somehow you were pursuing something that was um, more personally valuable to your life than anything the traditional world offered. Everybody was too much of a misfit, and none of us fit in. Camp 4 was the center for, for climbing. Climbing offered this opportunity to test yourself against the world. So you're saying that the Stone Masters, they smoked too much weed, and they slap climbed at a high level. <laughs> yeah, more, more, more or less. It's a big plane. It's got a 76-foot wingspan. It's flying at well over 300 miles an hour. So they're flying this thing at roughly 50 to 60 feet. The left wing dropped a little, and that's what caught the trees. The plane can't stay in the air. It ends up crashing into Lower Merced Pass Lake, generally affectionately referred to as Dope Lake. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, starting, I'm starting to piece it together. Holy shit. There's an airplane, and it's full of marijuana. Next question. This is part two of Dope Lake. A four-part series on one of climbing's most unbelievable true stories. Sometimes life is stranger than fiction. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. And I'm Lauren Delaney Miller. This is Climbing Gold. Chapter two, Yosemite Mafia. Well, let's just start at the beginning. I mean, how did you first hear about the plane crash? Well, plane crashed on the December 9th 1976, but we didn't know about it for another 47 days. This is Ranger Butch Farabee. Some uh, cross-country skiers, I think employees of the uh, Awani Hotel, in fact, were out cross-country skiing, and there wasn't that much snow that winter. It was a fairly dry winter, at least at this point. And they stumbled across the wing uh, of this aircraft, um, they came in and reported it. Uh, the search and rescue officer at that time was Tim Setnikov. I, I was working on a on a Sunday uh, afternoon in like January, and I got a call from a patrol ranger who asked me if we had still had a map of the plane crashes in Yosemite. At that time, there was no. GPS, GIS, there was no satellites, et cetera, et cetera. Back in the Pleistocene back then, what we had was just a standard Yosemite map with X's on it. And throughout Yosemite's history, there had been various plane crashes and they all were, you know, located and all cleaned up. But a lot of, occasionally people would run across, you know, some pieces of metal and think, oh, it's a plane crash. So we, we just kept track in case someone reported that in. So Tim takes the report from the skiers and he goes to check the map, assuming that the wing is from a crash that he already knows about. But the location where the hikers reported finding the wing isn't anywhere near the X's that he already has marked on the map. The skiers had written down the wing number. And so Tim starts calling around, but no one seems to know anything about this crash. But then a half an hour or so in, his phone rings. And it's the feds. Tim starts to get the sense that something weird is going on. They're, they're asking for his credentials. He's like, what is happening? But no one will tell him anything. And he keeps getting called by, like, 
higher-ups. And before he knows that there's a helicopter inbound to Yosemite Valley to ferry rangers to the site of the crash. They flew uh, three rangers in, and initially all they could find was the uh, large wing that was uh, propped up among the trees. But eventually, within an hour or so, they were able to follow the breadcrumbs over to the lake, where the plane is now underneath roughly uh, 12 to 16 inches worth of ice, plus some snow on top of it. As soon as they get there, they see all these dimples in the snow. And as they approach the lake, the rangers can see why Customs is so interested in this plane. The blocks sticking up out of the ice are frozen bales of weed. And there are a lot of them. Do you know much about the Stoneman Meadow Riot? I don't know anything about the Stoneman Meadow Riot. I don't even know where Stoneman Meadow is, which is weird because I spent a lot of time in Yosemite. I'm like, where's Stoneman Meadow? Is that the one across from Church Bowl? It's actually the one across from Curry Village. Young kids didn't want to camp in the campground with the families. They wanted to be off on their own, be able to enjoy their music, each other, smoke dope, whatever they wanted to do, but they didn't want to do it in the confines of a campground where you had to be in a site with six people, and that was the family unit. This is Ranger Mark Forbes. Um, and that was the Park Service idea, and that's what the Park Service was trying to maintain was this order in the campground of these family units. There are people who are hurt. Um, and the, the youth at the time didn't fit into that program. So the Park Service made a decision to try to clear this meadow, and they used force, which did not work out. Fortunately, no one was, was killed, but there were shots fired, there were vehicles burned, and it was a full-blown riot. Is burning in my eyes, burning in everybody's eyes. Get this action, man. They're wrecking people. Frankly, just it just looks like hell uh, to see a, 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 a ranger who's got a suit. The riot lasted for two days. Butch, Mark, Tim, none of them were rangers in Yosemite in 1970. But the Stoneman Meadow riot would deeply impact the trajectory of their professional lives. The riot made national news and became a black eye for the Park Service, and the Nixon administration made a change to NPS leadership. They just said, we're going to try a whole new management approach and bring in a whole new group of people to manage Yosemite and just kind of wipe the slate clean and start all over again. So the director at the time uh, decided to completely change the culture of the park and the management, and he came in and in a very rare circumstance, removed a large number of permanent as well as seasonal employees by various means. And he handpicked the superintendent and their successors who weren't in the traditional manner uh, uh, of coming up through the ranks. Most of them, if not all of them, were not forestry majors, were not natural resource management majors. They had different skill sets. And so that's how that, that sort of culture was, was implemented, was sort of in one big swoop. So the new management decides that the Rangers, they're going to need more training. Uh, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center opens in 1971, and by the 1970s, they're sending the Rangers to D.C. to get trained. So 
there's a group of 30 to 40 young rangers in Yosemite who excel at this task. 1970s Yosemite was certainly the place to be if you were a climber. But the same was true if you were a park ranger. So we, we kind of grew up together uh, those five or six years while we were in Yosemite, doing different things, helping the, the law enforcement program in the park at least grow, and became a fairly tight group of people. But it was just that, that core group of people, and, and uh, some people resented it, oh, you got a job because you were part of the mafia. The Yosemite Mafia. This cohort of rangers would go on to have incredible careers in the park service. In the winter of 1977, though, they were young, cutting their teeth, and possessed a range of skills they were ready to use. But when the helicopter from Lemoore Air Force Base set them down at Lower Merced Pass Lake, the scene in front of them would require the full suite of skills they were developing. So the rangers look around, and there's a plane sticking up out of the ice, and there's bales of marijuana floating to the surface, and the next day, Custom shows up. We'll be back with more after the break. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete-tested and expedition-proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next-generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Koros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-bitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. The Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. (laughs) If you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing training and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Coros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. This uh, blue, it has U.S. Customs emblazoned on the side and a big shield. Helicopter lands in El Cap Meadow, and these two agents get out. And as I said, they had these blue jumpsuits with, you know, U.S. Customs patches on there, their last names, and shoulder holsters with these pistols in there. They looked like they were right out of central casting. Over the next few days, the rangers and the customs agents, taking advantage of good weather, teamed up to try to remove the pot out of the backcountry. Where these, where these bales of, of marijuana, these 80-pound bales, would float up and they were covered with ice and we had chainsaws, we'd cut those, uh, try to cut those bales up. And for three days, we had just bluebird weather in February, just nice blue sky days, crisp, um, got us out of the valley and to do something a little different. And um, we got to do a little diving. When the rangers get all the weed that they can from the near the surface, they decide they need to go deeper. Visibility was about two or three feet. You're in this 33-degree water. We didn't have really the right equipment. We were using a 3-8-inch neoprene wetsuit 
that we'd in fill February. in February. So we'd fill that full of, of hot water before we got in and we'd drink a lot of coffee so we could recirculate the, the warm water in the suit. You know, I've been diving for since 1958 or so and it's by far the worst diving I've ever done. The water was not very clear because you have hydraulic fluids, uh, gasoline, uh, the plane is there and it's all uh, jagged pieces of aluminum. Uh, you've got some wiring, those kinds of things. So it was kind of a, a scary dive and in one way it was fun and it was exciting, but the other was just really scary just to be in that situation and you were gonna go under, under the ice, a foot of ice. Um, so it wasn't a normal dive for us. They can't find the bodies of the pilots so they decide to call this guy from Fresno, who owns a dive shop in the hopes that better gear will solve this problem. Uh, the gentleman from Fresno had uh, communications equipment, so he could go down and do a little more in-depth searching around, but it was such shallow water that really couldn't do much. Um, we couldn't find the pilots at that time. We were looking, we had information that there might be uh, a logbook of some sort, there might be money, there might be hard drugs that we were looking for, that if we could get those out of the water, uh, that would help DEA more than the Park Service. And then our, our job was to recover as much of the marijuana out of the lake as we could. And as we pulled out the marijuana, we'd put it on the, the old uh, Huey helicopter that the Customs and DEA had, and they'd fly it back in the valley. There's a full-fledged U.S. Bureau of Prisons jail in Yosemite Valley. So the marijuana started getting stored in one of these uh, cells. So directly below this particular cell was the fire management officer's desk. And this stuff was so wet and so yucky, uh, the stuff that we got, that it leaked through the, the floor and down onto this guy's desk down below. He'd been in the Korean War. He was a Korean War uh, military policeman and sort of a huff and gruff kind of a guy. Uh, you know, take no prisoners kind of a mentality. And uh, this thoroughly irritated him that all this stuff is dripping onto his desk. So at that point, uh, during my era, we had an incinerator uh, in the park. So they ended up taking all this dope with the exception of like one bag, which they kept for evidence in case something were to be prosecuted. So they ended up, ended up disposing of it that way. Surprisingly enough, when you start flying helicopter loads of uh, marijuana back in the park, you can't be very, um, very discreet as much as you want to be. And people sort of figured out what we were doing. So it wasn't really a, a, a well-guarded secret. Word starts to get out amongst the wintering climbers. And no one's really sure how the word got out. Some say it was employees at the Awani Hotel, and some say it was friends that worked for the curry company. It might even have been rangers. I mean, it's not like anyone was really trying to be that discreet about it. But after a few clear days of flying these bales of pot from the lake back to the valley, the weather comes in and the conditions at the lake are totally heinous anyway. Like it's freezing cold. The diving conditions are terrible. And the Park Service decides that they can just put everything on hold until the spring. Like the pot is 13 miles in the backcountry. It's guarded by this icy lake. And they think, you know, surely this can just wait until spring. Well, what we did really fully appreciate was the entrepreneurial nature of the local climbers. 
So you can kind of imagine that there's Camp 4 and there's all these different climbers from all over the place staying there. And then in the back corner is the search and rescue site. And that's where there are these canvas-walled tent cabins, basically, that the Park Service provides in exchange for people volunteering their time to do rescues. The search and rescue site in Yosemite has a definite Lost Boys vibe. It feels like Peter Pan. It's like with high lines and, and zip lines and tarps and, you know, wood piles and like, you know, throwing axe targets. Like, who knows what, all kinds of weird, weird things. I mean, it definitely has a Lost Boys vibe. Yeah, so when you're on SAR, you don't really do anything other than climb and go on SARS. And so it's like being fit is like your full-time job. The climbers in Camp 4 were uniquely well-positioned to, to reap the bounty of the plane crash. Basically, people living in Camp 4 had the the fitness, the disposition, the, the time available. Like, they were already good at navigating the backcountry. They knew the trails. They were willing to trudge in the snow. And like, yes, of course you want to be fit so that you can go on rescues and help people more quickly and more efficiently. But I feel like really the most important part is that you want to be able to go on SARS and then not be so worked that you can't go climbing afterwards. And I think most importantly, they had the motivation for it because they had no money. Basically, they were incredibly well adapted to toil. And, it, you know, it's really hard to hike that far into the backcountry in the snow and then carve blocks of weed out of ice. But if your whole life is toiling anyway, and you're incredibly fit and you have no money, you're like, what else do you have to do? You may as well just head back in there and, and do this. And so I think by contrast, when the rangers are bringing helicopters in to, to pull out the, the wreckage and, and remove the weed by helicopter, you can see that, you know, none of them are, are making money off this in the same way. You know, they don't have quite the same incentives. They're like, what's the easiest way to do this? As opposed to the climbers who just want to get it done. They're willing to take great personal risk to benefit from this incredible opportunity that just befell them. Everyone at the time would have heard this helicopter going back and forth and their ears would have perked up because that's even true today. Like we use helicopters for fires and we use helicopters for big rescue missions. And those are the two ways that starsiders make the most money. And so when you're in the valley and you hear the like wop, 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 wop of a helicopter coming in, your ears totally perk up and you're like, oh, someone's about to make some money. Here's climber Rick Akamazo again. When I got there and I saw these people who never had money before now had money. It was, it was like it fell from heaven. It literally fell from heaven. The riches fell from heaven. And that, that's an amazing story. It really is. So it really did feel like the gold rush or something. Like it felt like this incredible life opportunity to strike a rich in the mountains. Exactly. They, they basically post-hold and hiked up to the, the lake. Here's Dale Bard. All these bags started popping up all over the lake. And we're talking 50-pound bags of pot. They fish hooked them or swam to them and got them and strapped them to their backpacks. Or some of them couldn't carry a, a full 50-pound bag because it was water-soaked and it weighed probably 200 pounds. A couple of the guys were big, but most people had to break it up and strap it and carry it out. And that's how the the conveyor went and then obviously it was soaked in jet fuel and water so we needed a place to dry it and there was this beautiful boulder up above camp four that had a perfectly flat top and we spread out a tarp and that was my job 
my job was to dry it. I, and the sun came up and it dries it and it's it was a perfect spot. And so we dried it all out and we bagged it and then it went to either L.A. or the Bay Area. Like, what were the mechanics for selling the weed at that point? Like, how did everybody move all the product, so, so to speak? Like, you know, what happened? Especially because it's bales of marijuana. You know, it's, and it's funny because, uh, you know, in all the interviews we've done with this, uh, you know, everyone's like, there were three tons of marijuana on the plane and there were like bales. And I'm like, this is something that's normally sold by the ounce, you know? And mentally, I'm like, how many ounces are in a pound and how many pounds are in a ton? And you're like, that is so much marijuana. Like, how did you guys actually sell it all? First, there was not nobody in in a group was any kind of like drug dealer, not even right. Climber John Long, but we we knew drug dealers, so that's how it was peddled. Is you try to make a deal with somebody who we knew was in the business of selling stuff, and you give them a bunch of stuff, and whatever they gave you back, that was what you made. I mean, you know, it wasn't really. So there, there wasn't a lot of haggling nah. or negotiating or like hard business. It was just like, here's my bale of combustible marijuana. Just give me what you can. <laughs> yeah. And it was a felony back then. Right. So you want at least for, I did a, just a few of those little deals and I was, you know, crap in my pants the whole time. Just like, I, I got to finish college. I got, you know, I got a bunch of stuff I want to do. I can't go to freaking jail for weed. And you know, you go to jail for doing this. So, you know, just like, here, here, take this. And then you just run the other way. So basically all we had to do is get it to those locations and, and it was distributed and, and then the, the money was distributed accordingly. Uh, and I'll just say a lot of us made a, a fair amount of money. I didn't make as much as some, some made hundreds of thousands. Okay. Yeah. I only made about maybe 40, but, uh, but, um, cause I was just the dryer. I, I mean, people drove up in a XJ 12 Jaguar. <laughs> That's awesome to think of Jim pulling up in a, in a Jaguar. Yeah, it was cool. It was, it, it was a really bitching car. The Rangers couldn't figure it out. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, you know, camp four had these, what they thought were climbing bum drug addicts, which we all were drug addicts, but, um, but they had, uh, a lot of things that they couldn't afford. And it was, it was funny when they were scratching their heads going, what the fuck is going on? We'll be back with more after the break. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration, and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. 
I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Wood Barrel Bourbon Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I choose. They're offering new customers 20% off any purchase with the code CLIMBINGGOLD. Or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. <laughs> how, how was the weed? It was good, you know? It, 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 it definitely got its own name. You know, when you rolled a joint, um, it would spark a little bit. Yeah, even after it was dried. It did kind of go, you know, when you put the match to it. It got nicknamed Airplane Weed. and But no, it's good weed. Really high quality. It had this harsh taste to it. And people used to call it the airplane hack or something, a cough that you'd get from it because... It, w- it was bad, <laughs> but uh, but it was, but it made the rounds of Yosemite. Everybody, hey, you got some airplane? I got some good airplane here. You know, that's what people would say. I mean, s- smoke and aviation fuel seems like it's just. It, isn't that all bad? That sounds terrible for you. It, it, yeah, that's why probably why most of it was sold down in L.A. <laughs> the doctor at the medical clinic started noticing a strange set of symptoms appearing in his patients. And although he would not give me names, he would tell me he would say. Butch, when uh, these guys come in with this particular cough, this very distincting kind of a cough that he could identify, he said there was no doubt in my mind as to what they've been smoking. So we heard from Butch that the doctor in Yosemite was treating a lot of people with a very consistent condition, uh, like a persistent cough that basically <laughs> came from smoking that weed because of the, the aviation fluid and the, yeah. and the fuel in, in the weed. But you said that you smoked a fair amount of it as well. Like, did, you know, did, like, did it combust? Like, yeah, did it no, hurt it your did. lungs? You did it make it you a, cough? Like you put it in a, in a pipe, you first, you let it dry out because it was sodden. Right. And that would take a while, take a week or so, because, you know, it's got oil, basically oil in it. Like av gas has got a lot of petroleum mixed in with it. It would take a long time for the stuff to dry out. Then you stick it in the pipe. And as soon as you would hit it with a lighter, like a flame, like a blowtorch would leap off the stuff. It, like, <laughs> it was like, what the hell's in that stuff, right? <laughs> and uh, we would use a bong, which would filter it through a bunch of water. So it wasn't nearly as, you know, I don't think it was nearly as toxic. But yeah, I smoked a bunch of them and never had any problems. (laughs) Dale Bard, John Long, the late Jim Bridwell, and the gone-too-soon John Backer. There are other climbers, too, whose names we have removed from these interviews. They were some of the greatest athletes of an era. Inside the culture of climbing, this set of people, they were like the 1980s Lakers, with their all-time greats and showmanship and style, they were so Californian. The money, and certainly the aura of making the money, made these stone masters even cooler in a way. They would later appear in TV shows and commercials. This little bit of money gave the lifestyle a little bit of flash. So Backer was one of the people that went up there, and John did not have a car at that point. He was living in a tent in Camp 4, um, like everybody else, but, you know, he didn't have wheels. So that's how Backer got his red van. He, he was able to buy his Volkswagen van, which upgraded his Camp 4 lifestyle tremendously. Yaba was like the pure dirtbag. He had no money. 
He had a tent patched with duct tape, and that was about all he had. Rick is talking about John Yablonski, known for his cutting edge, but very sketchy free solos, and general all-around commitment to the lifestyle. We'll talk more about Yabo in Chapter 3. And and he lived in Camp 4 by scarfing. When people were done with their breakfast in the cafeteria, go, Yabo would go over there and grab their plates and finish it off. And he was one of the most blatant scarfers of anybody there. I remember tourists wouldn't finish their meal, but there'd be stuff they didn't touch. But Yabo, you know, there would be a piece of toast with a bite out of it. He'd just bite right into it, you know. he would, And to him... To get several thousand dollars, whatever it was, was tremendous. You know, he bought me dinner at the Mountain Room Grill there with big dinner. Well, that's there. Yabo, who was the poorest climber in Camp Four, was now well off and flout, you know, flaunting his uh, newfound riches. At this point, the climbers are raking it in, right? Like there's new cars in the Camp Four parking lot, and people are buying houses, and they're eating super well. Like some of them are funding these international climbing trips and like going on expeditions all over the world. And, you know, for some, it was like the weed money was just bonus cash. Like they got to fuel their adventures with this little bit of money that they made. But for some of them, it like really changed their lives forever. It's hard to stay quiet about that sort of thing. People notice when you show up in a Jaguar. While we had a tough time sorting out the exact timeline when the weed began leaving the high country on the backs of climbers, it started out with just a few people and eventually grew. Winter gave way to spring. Before the Park Service shut down their recovery efforts, they'd remove an estimated 2,000 of the 6,000 pounds of weed on the plane. By the first week in April, climbers had removed at least another 2,000. Now the word was out. There was a new California gold rush. And with it, a new set of dangers. Next time on Climbing Gold. That, that was a game. We, we didn't even think about anything like a risk or anything. We had way bigger fires to burn than that. You know, we're government employees, but we could kind of figure these things out that, hmm, maybe we should go back and check on this. There's all kinds of people with guns and knives. Burton had the chainsaw a couple inches to some guy's throat the day before trying to steal our stuff, so. Couldn't hear the helicopter coming from very far away. Everybody on that lake just scattered like a covey of quail. I mean, they just fled everywhere. In the box was a kilo of cocaine and this book. And he thought, I can capitalize on this. I can make some money out of this. And that's when there was a a sobering evening where we all thought, what the fuck is going on? Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was written and edited by Lauren Delaney Miller and me, Fitzgall. Additional production, editing, mixing, and original score by Evan Phillips. Additional music from Joey Kanner and Brendan O'Connell. Tracks are courtesy of Track Club. Stoneman Meadow Audio is courtesy of David Vassar at Backcountry Pictures. Social media support from Jake Wheeler. Our executive producers are Ben Endy and Jonathan Redzik for RxR Sports, and Becca Cahal and Lisey Hendricks for Duct Tape and Beer. You've been listening to Climbing Gold. <laughs>